You're listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, which features exclusive interviews with former Oregon State student athletes. We talk about what they did at OSU, what the transition was like away from college athletics, and what they're passionate about now. Here's a little taste of what's coming up on this episode. We're right front line center for, you know, in the COVID pandemic, and we're helping out, and we've made massive robotics and, and molds for um, for our customers. And we've also produced some products for our customers that, you know, in, in times that normally would have taken you know, 12 to 16 weeks, we turned around in eight weeks. It's pretty incredible. This is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. I am honored to be joined on the podcast today by a former Oregon State baseball player with a really fascinating post-baseball career. My guest today is Ryan Leip. He played third base for Oregon State back in the 90s, a two-time All-Northern Division player back when the Pac-10 was separated into the Northern and Southern Divisions. In fact, it started the unification process at the end of his career, then fully unified the year after he left. He played from 1995 to 98, which were the first four years of the Pat Casey era. We do talk a lot about Pat and what Pat Casey was like at the very beginning of his Oregon State career. Ryan took a lot of life lessons from Pat that have impacted him ever since, and he's had a very successful career once baseball ended. He's now the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at MGS Manufacturing Group. He now lives in Illinois in the Chicago area. And a lot of the things that he took from Pat Casey, he says, have helped him get to that point. Real quick, before we get to this conversation with Ryan, a word from our sponsor, Oregon Marketing Group, which can help your business with marketing and advertising, anything you need to get your presence out there more in the digital sphere. They do everything local and in-house. You can work hands-on with their staff to find the best solutions for your business, whether that's making advertisements to put on social media, video production, uh, radio spots, they help with your website, uh, whether it's a big project, small project they can do it all so check out oregonmarketinggroup.com that's oregonmarketinggroup.com also another corvallis business a restaurant angry beaver one of the best oregon state related restaurants with the menu with the beaver themes and the memorabilia all around even if you can't or, or aren't comfortable with sitting in a restaurant they can do takeout as well so you can get some great cooking from randy holmes and the whole staff there at angry beaver downtown corvallis check them out on Line and we'll put their phone number in the description. You can uh, make an order and call in. That's Angry Beaver in Corvallis. All right, so here is the native of Southern Oregon, hailing from Klamath Falls, the former third baseman for Oregon State from the mid to late 90s. Here is Ryan Light. Thanks so much for joining me on the Beaver Tales podcast out from the, the Midwest. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for, for joining me for a little while. Uh, let's start more with what work is now and then circle back to your time at Oregon State. Uh, your job, which you, you started back in March, uh, right when quarantine started, has become uh, very affected by COVID in a, in a pretty cool way. Tell me about um, the company you're working for and what their role is in a crazy year and what you're doing in the midst of all that. Sure. Thanks. I work for a company called MGS Manufacturing. It's a, it's based out of Germantown, Wisconsin, about 250 million in revenue or so. 
And the uh, most of the, the products that we make are, you know, they go to medical device companies. So we either private label the products or we make the parts for the medical device companies. Uh, most 80% of our business is uh, in that sector. And then 20% of our business is in automotive. And currently, you know, we're making a lot of the test kits for COVID. We make a lot of the robotics and automation equipment that medical device companies use to, uh, to make these test kits as well, uh, amongst a number of other different types of products. But been very rewarding, D different time to join an organization, but uh, everyone's got a hands on deck and, and having a lot of fun with it. So most of your work history has been in marketing and sales, but they've usually been for companies that are medically related, producing medical equipment and that sort of thing. So did you also have a medical background or just, just a marketing and, and sales sort of education? Well, actually, I went to medical school right out of college. Yeah, that was, that was a, I could tell you a little story about coach on that as well, you know, but um, yeah, I went to medical school originally. And then, uh, you know, part of, part of the way through the school, I decided I wasn't sure it's what I wanted to do, you know, longer term. And I took a year's leave of absence. I was in Minnesota at the time. And I took a medical device sales job during that year of, of absence in Santa Barbara, California. And you can imagine that, uh, you know, you do making pretty good money as a 23 year old, you're away from uh, Minnesota in the cold and you're, you're single at the beach in Santa Barbara. I didn't think I was going to be going back. So I ended up staying in, uh, in sales and marketing uh, in medical devices for quite a long time. And, you know, you end up getting passionate about um, all the different products or the services that you offer. So just before I left my previous organization at Beckton Dickinson, I was the general manager of a company that made a product that really touched the, the lives of cancer patients, in-state cancer patients. And, you know, it was the only time I'd ever had, we'd have patients, families reach out to us, thanking us for what we did for them. So it becomes rewarding in that capacity. And then now it's, you know, we're, we're right frontline center for, you know, in the COVID pandemic and we're helping out and we've made massive robotics and, and molds for, um, for our customers. And we've also produced some products for our customers that, you know, in, in times that normally would have taken, you know, 12, to 16 weeks we turned around in eight weeks it's pretty incredible wow what, what do those products look like that you've seen produced uh yeah what what, what do those look like well the if you if you've seen like a, an assembly line so we make the automation equipment that the parts come through and then um i'm not really at liberty to say a couple of the customers um but you know if you if you have gone and got a rapid test for covid it's highly likely that we've produced most of the parts that are um, the components of that, of that assay. Wow. About a dozen years ago, you were working uh, in Chicago also for, for Cardinal Health at the time, and you were the, the director of marketing for infection prevention, which has got to be quite the, the background for a year such as this, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that was a good, that was a good experience. We acquired the, um, a product called Chloroprep. It's a skin antiseptic uh, during that time. And and uh, several years later, I was an interim general manager for that business. So yeah, lots of, uh, lots of experience in the infection world. In fact, we were looking into acquiring a company for wipes. And right now, you know, when the pandemic first hit, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't even find wipes anywhere. And so, yeah, we were, we, those were, those are products that we're very familiar with. You briefly alluded to something related to Coach Casey in medical school. What, what was the story there about deciding to go to medical school or to not continue? Or, or what, what was that story you kind of thought of? This is my freshman year. And, you know, uh, mind you, I was not a, a, a Coach Casey recruit, but this is just what he, he did, did for all of his guys in the program. And you can call it 40 guys. And typically you have an interview with him at some point assessing how you did in the fall, what you want to do with your career, how he can help you, making sure things are on track. And 
you know, he just casually said, Hey, what would you like, what would you like to do when you, uh, you know, when you grow up, you know, most of the kids that come through here aren't going to be professional baseball players. Some of them might, but um, you know, most of them aren't chances are not. And so what would you like to do? And I said, well, I want to go to medical school. He's like, well, I think that's a first I've had. So, you know, typically, you know, at the time he just had folks that wanted to be baseball players or do something in sales and marketing. And he hadn't had someone in, in this position before. So he goes, you know what, I, I, I'm not really at position right now to help you know much about it. So let me get back to you. So he had connected with my counselor um, that was part of the, the college of science and learned about this and met with him again. And uh, about a week later, and he goes, all right, do you know what it takes to get into medical school? Do you have the commitment for this? And so I gave him my sense of what it was. And, and he's like, yeah, you, you got that right. So you have to have a certain amount of GPA. You have a certain GPA. You have to have a certain amount of volunteer hours. You have to do some research typically. And um, you have to perform well. You know, all these things you know, go into it. And he goes, well, you have the commitment for that while you're a baseball player. And if you have the commitment, then uh, I'm with you. So the first term was the fall I got always. And then the next term is when we really started the travel schedule in the winter. And my, my grade slipped below a, a three point. I think I was a 2.9 that term and he calls me in his office. And, you know, sometimes with a, with a baseball player, you might be going two nine, nice job. You're eligible. I had a boy, you know, but you know, in this case, he was, he was getting into me a little bit. He goes, I thought we had a commitment. We had, you know, you gotta be dedicated to this. So he made me come in once a week, checking with him. I had to do a study hours by him. So he knew I was doing it for a whole term. He put me on somewhat of a suspension for that capacity. And, and uh, I never forgot that just to set your sights on a goal and commit to it. And, and, you know, he's got all these kids he does this for. It's just incredible. I don't know where he finds the time. <laughs> when I talked with your, your old college roommate, Chris Pine, he had a somewhat similar story, although it wasn't medical school for him, but he said, I'll admit it. I went as an athlete student was, was my perception. Yeah. And, and Casey had to kind of make sure I was going to class and all that, make sure I was eligible. So slightly different, but slightly similar with you and Chris. <laughs> That's right. Well, I remember I'd be studying in my room and Chris would be playing pool outside my door. <laughs> he was definitely an athlete first. So when you, came to Oregon State 95 would have been your first spring 95 through 98 you played for Oregon State but Pat Casey was not the one who recruited you Jack Riley was the one your first contact how did you first come from Klamath Falls to hear about Oregon State and then the transition of well now I'm not even going to play for the coach that recruited me what was that process kind of coming into Oregon State like sure well my senior year Oregon State was very good you know so when I was in high school uh, they had they'd won the North Northern Pack. Um, they had a couple first round draft picks. Um, I think Christman and and I want to say Thurman were both on that on that club. They had a great Snelling was it short? Um, lots of lots of good just a loaded team. Kevin Hooker is a pitcher and second baseman. Just a really good club. And uh, they were they're on TV quite a bit. And you know I go gosh it'd be great to be able to uh, attend a school that's only three and a half hours from my my family so they can come up and watch me play. And my my parents did that. So I, um, you know, Kirk Kemp was the assistant coach at the time and had recruited me. And I was looking at uh, Washington State, Oregon State, um, Pepperdine, and UC Santa Barbara were the, the final four. And uh, ultimately, I liked, uh, you know, I felt really comfortable at Oregon State. And I liked the fact that they were close to home and had a really good reputation and great club. So then you come to Oregon State and pretty quick you realize, oh, okay, so Pat Casey is my guy now and not Jack Riley. What was your kind of first impression of Pat, of a guy who did not recruit you, but now he's your coach. Yeah, so there's a little continuity in the fact that Coach Kemp was still the assistant coach um, at that time. So I, I still felt, you know, some comfort there. Um, but 
uh, it was the intensity, you know, I, um, you know, coach just, he's a very intense, uh, tense person and um, competitive. And, you know, my first impression of him is this guy's a winner, you know, <laughs> he's, he, he's going to make us winners. And I want to go to get past. It doesn't take long to, uh, to be around coach where you're like, gosh, that guy, that guy gets it done. And I want to have a little bit of his passion. If I have a little, but if I have some of my, his passion, in my big toe, I'll be pretty good. I'll be doing pretty well. When, uh, when you arrived, Oregon State at that point was still in the Pac-10 Northern Division. Uh, was college baseball in the Pacific Northwest, what was that like in terms of the, the teams you played, the travel, the opportunities for postseason play, all that sort of stuff? The first two years, we were just in the Northern Pac. Um, the next two years, they did somewhat of a, an experiment, if you will. We had we played three different teams from the the six pack. Um, did really well against them, actually. Um, you know, my senior year, we went seven and two. We swept UCLA, we swept Arizona, and we nearly took two or three from the eventual national champion and and USC. We had one game one, and just did, they pulled it out. That's what championship clubs do, though. But uh, we we did pretty well against them. Um, had had our play was much better when we were able to do that. We didn't get in. We should have, but we didn't. The first two years, though, you, the the schedule wasn't nearly as strong as it was the, the next two years. My first year, we were about 500. We just didn't perform that well. Um, my my sophomore year, we were good. Uh, we just didn't have the schedule uh, that would give us a, a high enough RPI to to get in there. You know, we're playing Washington State, University of Portland, Portland State. We're um, you know we're the teams that were in the Northern Pack. Um, then we would go on, you know, we'd have a, a like a spring break trip or you know, we went to Hawaii, I believe, and, and played the Rainbows and a couple other clubs there. And, um, you know, it just wasn't a, a schedule where you in the Pac-12 or Pac-10 now, you're always playing someone that half the clubs are going to be making a pretty good run, you know, but it was uh, it was fun. It's fun to see us how we performed against the six pack. And, you know, coach really lobbied for that. You know, he had some support. Um you know, from uh, Gillespie, um, who would, you know, they had, they had uh, you know, that's a team that we, they took two or three from us at their park, but, you know, they recognized we were pretty good. So, you know, Coach gave, Coach Gillespie gave us some, some support. Most of the other clubs uh, in that area, you know, they were, they were, they were pretty skeptical, but, you know, it's kind of fun to see us kind of beating up on them nowadays. I remember Case told me, and, and Dan Spencer had brought up the same story. He, I bet Case has told the story a lot of, Mark Marcus told him the very first meeting, you guys don't yeah. know what you're getting into when, <laughs> when you're joining the, the South. Yeah. What was your, uh, the, the skepticism that you kind of alluded to, what did the South think of the North? How, how high was their opinion of the, th- how good you could be? I, uh, I don't know. I, I would say that they, they probably didn't think very highly of us. You know, they probably didn't think that we could get it done. Time Stanford was the, probably the best program in the country. Could, could consistently ranked about you know one or two. Then you had USC who was very good. Um, of course, um, you know, Brock and Arizona State. You know, look, they, they had they had some pretty good clubs there. Um, but shoot, I, the year before UCLA was ranked at the top um, in my, my junior year, and they they still had a lot of those same guys: Eric Burns, um, Valiant, um, just some uh, Chase Utley. They had a pretty good club. They came to our place and they got swept. I remember Arizona. They had a, they had they were ranked at the time. I want to say sixth in the country, and they they came to our place and they got they got smoked pretty good. You know, we had a guy that was throwing high nineties. We hadn't really seen much of that, and you know, he, we ran him out pretty quickly. So you know, I think after having you know a few of those series, I think people started to look and take notice of us. 
during this whole time, what were some things that you were learning from Pat Casey, whether it be baseball related, but especially things that stuck with you, lessons that you remembered far beyond the playing field? What were some of the things that you were learning from him through these years? I would, I've learned so much from coach. It's hard for me to, how much time do you have? You know, but, you know, I think one of the things that really sticks with me and something I, I still, I've always told my teams is everything matters. Everything matters. You know, I remember uh, he got, he, he took it to the point of as soon as you step foot on the field, no matter where you are, you better start running. If, no matter what you're carrying, your bags or anything else. So a lot of people you might see touch, you know, they get to the ballpark and they're, they're walking to the dugout. He wouldn't let you do that. You know, how you wore your clothes, how you, how every, every single thing, every single pitch mattered, every, you know, he, he can, everything mattered. And if you think about life and, you know, even in sales, especially in sales, every single touch point you have matters. And you better take every single touch point seriously, you know, and if you're in marketing, you know, every single opportunity you have to reach a potential consumer, those all potential consumers, they all matter. You know, don't take anything for granted, take nothing for granted no matter what the circumstances are. That's something that really has always stuck with me. And, you know, I, I preach it. In fact, I had a sales meeting last week and I was preaching the same thing to those guys and said it came from my coach. So I just, I consistently do that. And in passion and um, he does things the right way, you know, it teamwork, um, the team always comes first. And I think those are lessons that, that, that go well in life. You know, it's not the, you know, the name on the back of the jersey, but the one on the front that matters the most. So, you know, those are things that he really, he really always preached. When I was talking with Chris Pine, we were talking about the intensity of Pat Casey, and you kind of brought it up a little bit early. Uh, Chris would remember watching Pat Casey play the noon pickup ball in Gill Coliseum, okay. seeing the fire. I, I don't know if you ever saw him play basketball or other stories of his intensity, but okay, how was Pat Casey as a basketball player? Oh, man. So uh, it, a lot of us, you know, instead of in the rain and Corvallis, we would, you know, train and exercise or run around inside Gill Coliseum on stairs or whatever it might be to stay in shape and oftentimes he would be playing some pickup basketball out there you know man just the look on his face the intensity of his face you can see him throwing elbows and throwing people around and you know he's, he's taking no prisoners you know it's just kind of fun to see and you're like he does this in every aspect of his life i think everyone unless you see him unless you see him with susan though he's a he's quite the teddy bear with susan and his and his kids that's for sure yeah, absolutely. Did did his kids come around much at that point? It really only would have been, I mean, Joe wasn't even born until when you were a player, but did you get to know his family very much? I got to know Big John pretty well. He was always part of the, he was always part of the crew and always around and you know, he would be in our dugout, similar to what you see today, you know, or had, had seen in several years. John was always around younger. And uh, Brett was um, young and small, but he was, I remember Brett, coach would be before practice or after practice, he's teaching him how to switch hit. And this kid was just hitting ropes. You know, I hitting better than I could. All the, <laughs> he was just a little bit bigger. He had been starting for us. You know, he was, you know, he's a pretty good little athlete. Yeah. One of the really, Kelly, me- Kelly was pretty, you know, I, I, she was pretty young. I can't, I remember seeing her around, but most, most of my most impressions were of Brett and John at the time. Yeah. I really uh, was, moved by pat casey when when i asked him a little bit about john and just how much they bonded over sports and john just being the the number one fan of oregon state not just baseball but but period uh brett called him the the mayor of corvallis basically that's that's what it feels like of seeing how pat 
um, learned from his own son, John, and became a better coach because of him. It was early when you were playing, so I don't know how much you saw of this. Maybe hard to speak to of of how much Pat Casey grew as a coach because you were just his first four years. But did you see that, um, especially with John and how he could maybe take back a little bit of intensity that was so natural and not be a father so harsh? I mean, I, I don't know if you saw. It's probably fine if you didn't, but you know, did you see that much? Coach was quite a bit different in his later years than he was in his first four years. And I think he got the job, I want to say he was around 36 years old. And, you know, he still, you know, he still caught the play. He was, he was still that good. You know, he coached a bit towards Fox, but he, you know, a guy could still play and he's still intense, you know? And so he, you know, for him, I think when he started coaching, everything, everything was easier, you know? So for, for to him, things just came easy to him where, you know, for me, it didn't come quite as good as some other guys. And, and he'd, he'd, he'd come back and say, you know, the guy's only got one pitch. Like, why can't, and he's only on one speed. What's the deal? I go, that one speed, 95 miles an hour, and he throws a slider with it. <laughs> I can't tell the difference, you know. So, but coach was at the time just very intense. And yeah, I think he, he had more patience, I think, or different abilities. And as he got a little bit older um, and probably a little bit wiser on how to approach that. But I, I think it worked for me. A lot, of, a lot of the guys that he recruited at that time, we're all just tough as nails. You know, we had to be, you know, we, he wasn't getting the, the blue chip recruits. Piner was one of his only blue chip recruits that we had. He could have played anywhere, but um, a lot of us, you know, were, you know, weren't in that same boat. So we had to be tougher than everybody. We had, if it was raining, we had, he could also say, you know, don't let the elements come in. So we had to be, Hey, we had to be the tough guys out there. You know, so that kind of approach probably worked with us better. You know, then you get a lot of blue chippers, you know, they kind of like the, they like the, the coddle a little bit, you know. So I think, you know, he changed his approach as he got a little older. In fact, you, I, I remember one story. Um, gosh, I was in the cage. I don't, I don't think Coach likes this story, but it amuses me still. Um, uh, John John was kind of a, a fan of mine at the time. You know, I, just, he, I took to him. I was, you know, a lot of us were good to him, and he spent all the time. And, of course, he's going to appreciate those guys. spent all the time with him. But, um, you know, I had had a bad hitting series before that. It was a tournament down in Santa Clara. I just didn't, didn't hit very well. And I'm sitting there, and, and he's like, hey, Dad, I'd like this. I want to see Ryan Light pit. I want to see Ryan Light pit. And uh, he's not, coach isn't saying anything, because I was, like, next to line. I want to see Ryan Light pit. And he turns to John, and he goes, you know, John, I like to see Ryan Light pit, too. I like to see Ryan Light pit. Just one hit. Just one hit. I'd be And John's like, okay. You know, he's not really understand, getting it. But he's kind of indirectly giving me a little poke. But I, <laughs> I, guess I still love hearing about that. The story's great. That's that's amazing. Um, one other thing, just kind of about baseball, and then we'll close with uh, a little more personal note about what life is looking like and other life lessons sort of stuff. But you, the first four years of the Pat Casey era, your first four years were also the last four years of the stadium uh, before that whole upgrade and and Coleman Field becoming Goss Stadium at Coleman Field. Can you describe for people who maybe? have never watched an Oregon state baseball game in that era. What was the, the stadium like at that point, the grandstand, the bleachers, the dugout, the field, what was it like back then? It was night and day, you know, I, it's just a beautiful park now. I'm, I'm very proud of it to, to, to show people and see that's where I play, but I, I, I kind of leave out the fact that I actually didn't play in that stadium, but the, um, you know, it was, it was grandstands, you know, it's in the extended down each side. Um, there was, there, there was no stadium. It was like, you would see a, at a, maybe a high school park, the probably bigger stands than you'd see in a high school parks. There's a lot of them, but um, I remember the, gosh, we still got pretty good crowds there that those last couple of years. You know, I remember playing in Washington 
I think they want to say there was about 4,000 people there because they were just all lined up all the way down, all the way around up in the stands and everything. And right now they have it, you know, so you're kind of down on top of the field and, you know, but then they just kind of spread out everywhere. And if we would have taken four, we would have won the Northern pack. We took three or four. But so we got to, you know, we had it. Then we, you know, the winner of that, we had to play the six pack for the ultimate championship of the pack. But yeah, it was quite a bit different. I remember when UCLA came into town, um, uh, and uh, they were just looking around at the stadium. They go, what kind of park is this? I remember a couple of those guys were just, this place is, you know, you know uh, they got swept. <laughs> a quick interruption on this episode to let you know about a special project I think you'll enjoy, the Beaver Tales documentaries, including exclusive audio interviews, narration, and retelling what made the 2018 Beaver baseball postseason so special. Every single game, Oregon State would play in Omaha. Two or three really weird things that maybe I'd never seen before would always happen. When he hit the home run, out of my coaching career, that's without a doubt the most exciting thing I've ever been a part of. This audio documentary series will come out in a few months. To subscribe, there's a link in this episode's description. Check out the website and put your email down there so you can be one of the first people to listen to the Beaver Tales documentaries. All right, back to this episode. A couple last things for you. I mean, we talked about how Pat Casey has changed over the years. How about, how about you, uh, an area where uh, you recognize that the person you are is different than you used to be, some area of growth that you've had? I mean, over over the years of whenever you know i'm sure there's a handful of things since college and maybe it's hard to summarize because growth happens slowly but where is an area you think that that you're a different person today than you were back at osu yeah that's a that's a great question i almost say it's comparable to what coach's evolution has been like um in, in terms of an empathy i'm more empathetic than i than i was probably right out of school um i was intense i was you know conquer the world and you know, and didn't have a lot of patience for folks that didn't have that same type of mentality. You know, even when I started getting into leadership roles, I expected them all to have the same type of intensity and drive that I had. And it's just not, it's unrealistic, you know, and, um, you know, never know what people's lives are like, what's going on in their lives. And, you know, now I, I take way more time to get to, to know all the people in a, on a very personal level. And um, I have a, a lot more patience about performance on certain areas and, um, you know, performance matters, but I just have become you know, way more, you know, way more empathetic. And honestly, it's created more loyalty. You know, people, you know, want to be part of an organization that has leaders that, that treat people that way. That was one of the cool things I heard Joe say, Pat's son, is that he got a lot better coaching people who didn't have the same personality as him. He always expected people to have the same fire. And later on, he realized, oh, a lot of guys try hard and they care, but they're just not as expressively intense as I am. And, and he learned how to, how to handle that. And it sounds like you, I mean, the leadership, you, leadership roles you've had have been pretty big and you've mm -hmm. maybe had to learn those same lessons too. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think those, that, that 98 club, you know, had mirrored his fire in quite a bit, but not everyone can do that. You know, you, if you remember watching like um, Darwin Barney play, the guy looked like he was just having a ball out there, you know, smiling and Madrigal, Nick Madrigal is another guy, you know, he has a lot of fire in his belly, but he, he looks like he's having out there playing, playing, you know, in, in the park, you know, so it's people just have different personalities. Were there any, uh, I don't know how much, how close do you watch the 2018 team or, or, you know, just new saw the storylines, but anything about that team stand out to you? Any memories from that year? Oh gosh, I have, 
from them winning the championship still with my kids. I made them stay up and I got to take my, on my phone. It's the screensaver still. I'm a hold it. I'm just beaming happy about it. And, uh, you know, I had a bunch of my buddies on the 98 club or con and we were just having a ball with it. So yeah, we were, we were all following it pretty close. That team uh, just had the most unbelievable resilience, you know, all the different storylines um, that, you know, that, that took place. So actually the previous, the, the year and the year after that, um, you know, from, you know, I, I think everyone knows some of the, the challenges they face there. And then, and then when they, they get to there and they, they lose, they drop a game and then they go all the way back through and, um, and you know, that team just never gave up. I mean, even that, even that game, I think it was game, game two where, um, I mean, every single, they, they, they didn't give up no matter what, and even every pitch, you know, just that excitement of that, you know, part of the fun was, it's probably one of the things I enjoyed with the, the COVID TV when they shut down sports is on, you know, ESPN, they were playing all those games again. I probably watched that, that game two about 10 times when I was on the road and I watched it every single time as if I had, I didn't know the outcome because I still would be jumping up. Yeah. Had a boy, you know, you know, and the big lefty hits the bomb and you know, all those things. So that was, that's fun. I love that Trevor Larnick hit a home run to right field where all the Arkansas fans were and they were cat calling him and jeering at him all game in right field. And then he hits a home run right to him and then goes plays defense there in the bottom of the ninth. That's my favorite part. That's so great. Yeah. My buddy and I went to game one and they, it was like a home game for those guys, Arkansas. I mean, it, 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 it was amazing. They the tailgates. It was nothing but Razorback fans everywhere. Everywhere you go is obnoxious. They're all doing the woo big big suey thing. Everywhere you go, and then you're like, you know. So I, but it, so they basically were playing a, like it was like we were on the road. You know, we beat a team on the road. Basically, it was great. I didn't realize you were there in Omaha. You, you only watched game one, and then you had to leave, or what happened there? Yeah, I just had to. I just snuck in and was able to go to one game, but unfortunately, we didn't get the win on that one. <laughs> maybe it was good luck for you to, to leave and watch on tv i guess <laughs> that's the way i looked at it yeah <laughs> yeah that's great well ryan thanks so much for your time best of luck everything with the job and all the the Thank great you. work that you and your company are doing a lot of fun hearing your your memories from osu so thanks so much for talking with me now uh, thanks for having me i appreciate it and i appreciate you uh reaching out to us old timers and give us a little bit of time to relive some old old days so it's a lot of fun well, I had a lot of fun hearing from Ryan Leip. It's been cool to see how successful and how impactful in their business careers. A lot of these Oregon State athletes have developed into their careers, have formulated pretty successfully. And I think part of that has been the coaches that you know taught them, mentored them, the experiences in their Division I athletic careers. That's been pretty cool to see. Uh, hey, I'll give you a quick schedule on the Beaver Tales podcast in just a moment of the upcoming episodes and when I'll release them around Christmas time. But real quick, I want to give a mention to Children's Garden. They're today's featured nonprofit. They're located in the Philippines. Not a big charity, just one home for kids who were living on the street. So your money goes a long way. There's about a dozen to 15 kids that live in this home, usually young teenage, uh, sometimes even younger, like eight, nine, 10 years old. When they get to 18, oftentimes they go on to high school and college. And if they're not ready, there's a, a second house that they've got for those kids who uh, need a little bit extra time before they move on to bigger and better things. So check out childrensgarden.ph. That's childrensgarden.ph. All right, well, I've only got one more episode left in this year. going to uh, just do another Monday episode on the 28th and then some big things coming in 2021. You can catch Isis Lowry closing out the 2020 uh, calendar year, former Oregon 
State gymnast. We had a really fun chat recently about what she's passionate about, things she learned in her gymnastics career. Uh, so that'll be really good next Monday. And then uh, Jess Lewis comes out 2021 and uh, a couple of football, baseball, all across the board in January. And then the Beaver Tales documentary series coming out uh, not too long after that, hopefully uh, right around the start of baseball season. Well, thanks so much for joining me. I hope you have a great Christmas season. And thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. My name is Josh Warden. It's been a pleasure talking with you all of 2020. Have a great rest of your day. Good night and go Beavs. Go Beavs.